Open up to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Start off with a question for you. Have you ever considered that the answers to some questions have immediate impact on your life? The answers to some questions have an immediate impact on your life. Take for example, we're driving from uh, Illinois to North Carolina for a family trip. And uh, a sensor goes off in the vehicle that you're driving known as a 2009 Jeep. And that sensor has, is a tire sensor and you're going, the last thing that I need right now is for something to be wrong with the tire as we are driving a thousand some miles to North Carolina. Immediately, in my head, it's like, Grace, get out the, the book, pull it out, figure out what does this sensor mean. And the sensor meant that something is wrong. And uh, that's all it told us. Something is wrong. And immediately, what do you do? You get smart by going, pull up Google. Find us a Jeep dealership because last thing we need is to be stuck somewhere. Well, Google helped us out, found a little place in the middle of absolutely nowhere, and we were praying that they would be able to help us out. The reality is, they were not able to help us out. Finally, though, we did find a place when we were in, uh, in Virginia, and they, they were able to replace all that stuff. But asking questions and asking questions, question after question, their answers sometimes came back as very helpful in leading us to the next place. Sometimes it left us at a dead end. Sometimes it's like going to a gas station and saying, hey, I'm needing some directions. Would you be able to help me out and just, can you get me to this next place? And sometimes the clerk can give you, man, all you have to do is turn on Highway 52, take a right, and you're going to be able to get right to your next place. Or other times they look at you going, I'm sorry, I just live here. I don't know how to get there. Perhaps you have... You've had to give an answer to a question that has direct implications on the life of someone that you love and someone that you care about. And sometimes your answer or your decision is a matter of life or death, physical or even spiritual. Our answers actually matter. The questions that are asked and our answers actually matter. So today we're coming to the historical account of the record of Jesus' death. The reality is I have just recently preached this in a, when we were back in our Lent series. But we're going to come back to it again. And the beauty about Scripture is that you can preach the same text a hundred thousand different ways and the Spirit can speak to your heart in a hundred thousand different ways about the beauty and the power of the gospel. And so we are going to be looking at this account this morning, and we're going to be confronted with three of the most, what I think are probably some of the most important questions that we will have to ask. Your answer to these three questions will determine your identity, your purpose in life, and most importantly, what will happen to your soul when you die. 
So stand with me as we read Luke 23, starting at verse 33 or 32, reading to 43. Hear the word of the Lord. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they were crucified. They crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He has saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was who, who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me. When you come into your kingdom. And he said to him. Truly I say to you. Today. You will be with me. In paradise. This is the word Lord. You may be seated. So we're in our final. We're in our final sermon. For our series. Called come to Jesus. It's a a call uh, looking at how Jesus is interacting with people during His life. And how Jesus responds to them in, in their moments of pain, in their questions, in their, His interaction with them. It's a, it's a kind of a template for us looking and saying, how do we, like Jesus, respond to people in their different seasons of life, in their, in their pains, their hurts, their hang-ups? How do we respond to them? Because they came to Jesus or found themselves with Jesus. But it's also an opportunity for us to say, we need to have a come to Jesus conversation as a church because evangelism is part of our call. We are coming, having a come to Jesus moment of saying people, lost people matter to God. Therefore, they are to matter to us. Therefore, let us look closely at how does Jesus interact because we are going to have these conversations with people who need Jesus. He's the only hope for this lost and broken world, for your lost and broken friends, your lost and broken family members, your lost and broken co-workers, your lost and broken neighbors. He is the only hope. And so we need to be able to answer their questions. So today we're going to look at three questions, three important questions. But let's start by looking at verse 32. There were two people with Jesus, two who were criminals, who were led away to be put to death with him. So the scene is set. Three people have been sentenced to death. 
Who are these three people? Two of them were described as criminals. In the ancient world, in the ancient Roman world, the death sentence was reserved for those lower class criminals. They were slaves and ultimately, especially for Roman um, enemies of the state or enemies of the state for the Roman government. Anybody who, who opposed the Roman government, they are going to make an example of that person and make sure everybody sees this is what happens to people who are enemies of the state. And these two men were more than likely enemies of Rome. The violence they, they show leading up to the cross as they revile Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 and Matthew or Mark chapter 14 give us just a glimpse of the hatred and the evil that is filling their hearts. We don't see that right here in Luke. But when you look in these other gospel accounts, you can see that they both were riling, railing against Jesus. There was hatred. There was evil in their hearts. These were wicked men. But who is this mysterious third man. To answer this, you've got to look back at the previous scene in, in verses 18 through 25. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. So, so they were saying, Give us a murderer better than Jesus. And Pilate addressed them once more desiringly to re release Jesus, but they kept on shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And a third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? So even Pilate is saying, this guy, he is, he needs to be not crucified. He needs to be released. Barabbas should be crucified. I, I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to those, their will. This third man, sentenced to death, was no other than Christ himself. Regardless of what you think about Jesus, we can all agree that Jesus is a towering figure in the history of this world. This man has shaped the course, morals of our world. Even our government has fingers of Christianity built in it. And in many respects, this man, Jesus, is inescapable. You probably know one or two people that may even have a claim to have a relationship with him. And you can look at their life and just say, they, I knew who they were. Now look at them. They have been changed. They've been transformed. This Jesus that they love, that they say has changed them, truly has. In fact, 
you can drive through almost any town here in America and you are going to find churches much like this one where Christians meet together. They hear sermons about him. They sing songs to him. They, They give money to his cause. And this man, Jesus, that they sing about, they listen about, that they give to, lived 2,000 years ago. This leads us to the first most important question that we, we will ask. One, who is this Jesus? Who is this man? How we answer this question determines so much. By looking at at a source that includes details about him, by looking at a source that records the eyewitness, what they heard and what they saw, is how we we look at how we answer that question. We, We need a source that gives us the account of what he said, what he did, who he was. And in other words, we have to look at the source, the primary source known as the Bible. And how does the Bible look at the question, who is Jesus? It answers it in two ways first it says he is god all of the bible points to jesus as the son of god the sinless one the very image of god perfect in all his ways in the old testament from genesis all the way through malachi god god promised one day one day he is going to send a king he's going to send a messiah he's going to send one who is going to set his people free who is going to save them from their sins and all this is revealed all throughout the old testament is pointing towards this coming king and the new testament says yes here he is Jesus himself testified to this reality when he said in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. And in John 8, 58, he stated, I am the truth. I am the truth. And before Abraham was born, I am. He's saying, this is who I am. And the Apostle Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. Think about that. By Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and ultimately for him. Jesus is the very one who sustains you in this moment. If he takes his hand away from this creation, we all die. And yet at the same time, the Bible teaches us that not only is he God, he is man. He is made just like you and me the bible tells us in in philippians chapter 2 that uh, jesus made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness do you know what this means this means that jesus got hungry It means that Jesus got thirsty, and when he didn't sleep, he got tired. When he stubbed his toe, it hurt. And when 
the soldiers pushed those thorns into his skin, into his scalp, and drove nails into his wrists, it hurt. He was human. God, the Creator, the Holy One, the Great I Am, the One who was before Abraham, the One who spoke in all creation, was put into into existence. He became human. And it is Jesus, this God-man, that is recorded as being led away and put to death in between two criminals. The one who did no wrong is now being led to his death row with sinners. One on his right, one on his left. The very one who formed each of us and the very one who gave us life. The one who knows every single hair on your head is now being led to die at the hands of those that he created. For each of us to know fully who Jesus is, we must answer the second most important question. What happened to Jesus? Verse 33 said, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. What happened to him? They crucified him. Martin Hengel uh, has written extensively on the topic of Roman uh, crucifixion. And at the outset of his book, Um, called crucifixion he described crucifixion as a barbaric form of execution of the utmost cruelty he later writes in his book crucifixion would include some kind of flogging beforehand and the victim often carried the beam to the place of his execution where he was nailed to it with his outstretched arms raised up seated on a wooden a small wooden peg and from there the executioners were given full reign Jesus is described in John chapter 19 as being flogged and being beaten. Historians tell us that the victims sentenced to crucifixions often never even made it to the cross. They often never even made it to the place where their arms were outstretched because they had lost so much blood from the whipping and flogging that they died on that very spot. And even the Old Testament prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 54 told us that Jesus' appearance was so terribly marred that we would not even be able to recognize who he was. And as he carried the cross to the skull of Golgotha, his back was cut open and bleeding so profusely that it scraped against the splintered wood of the cross. They drove these spikes into his nails and his feet. They hoisted him up for the whole world to see and then waited to see the Son of God die alongside two other Roman criminals. And yet in the midst of this, In the midst of this, Jesus practices what he urges all of us to do. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He he says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He is praying that the people that are rejecting Him, the people who are reviling Him, the people who are killing Him, might experience experience the love of the Father through the forgiveness of the Father. But not not only did they 
crucify him, they also clothed him in shame. Verse 34, they cast lots to divide his garments. What does that mean? One one commentator said this, and I, I love this phrase, as the Son of God hangs naked on the tree, a casino breaks out beneath the cross. This Christ. And we often see pictures in art of a very clean white loincloth as he's up there. The reality is that loincloth that he was wearing was now being auctioned off at the foot of the cross. Corey Ten Boom's book The Hiding Place describes the experiences of Corey and her sister Betsy in the Nazi concentration camp during World War II. Corey writes this, I've read a thousand times the story of Jesus' arrest, how the soldiers had slapped him, laughed at him, flogged him, and uh, and now such happenings had faces and voice. Friday was reoccurring was reoccurring humiliation with medical inspection and we we had to maintain our erect hands at side positions as we filed slowly past the grinning stare of guards how there could have been any pleasure in the sight of these stick thin legs and hungering bloated stomachs i could not imagine nor could i see the necessity for the complete undressing but it was one of these mornings while we were waiting, shivering in the corridor, that another page of the Bible leapt into life for me. He hung naked on the cross. I had not known, I had not thought. The painting and the carved crucifix showed a, at least a scrap of cloth But this, I suddenly knew, was the respect and reverence of the artist. But oh, at that time itself, there had been no reverence. No more than I saw in the faces around us now. I leaned towards Betsy ahead of me in line. Her shoulder blade stood out sharp and thin beneath her thigh. Blue mottled skin. Betsy. Betsy. They took his clothes too. Ahead of me in line, I heard a gasp. Oh, Corey. I never thanked him. Oh, Corey, I never thanked him. Jesus, the Son of God, the one who owns everything, is stripped down of everything they crucified him they shamed him and they reviled him verses 34 and 35 showed the picture of how the rulers scoffed at him the the, the soldiers mocked him you saved others 
Can you not save yourself? Come on, come down from the tree. And Jesus, in that very moment, could have called down legions and legions and legions of armies, angels of uh, angels, coming down and saying, we're done with this. But they mocked him. All of this is happening to fulfill Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by man, men, a, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. While the revilers of that day are dead and gone, without even a name, the voice of the reviler is still alive today. Those who, like the revilers, look at the claims of the gospel and think, this is just a fairy tale. This is just a fairy tale. And they reject God. There's those who, like the man on the cross, view Jesus as kind of a genie in a lamp. And they just pray, man, if you are really God, then you will get me out of this mess. If you are who you say you are, you will save me from this relational, emotional, financial, whatever kind of distress I find myself in. But on that day, Jesus was reviled and he was rejected. He was left alone on the cross in the middle of two, two criminals while those around him mocked him as he hung naked, nearly lifeless on that cross. But in the middle of of all that chaos, in the middle of all the commotion that was going on, the second thief speaks up. Do you not fear God? Since we're under the same sentence of condemnation. In other words, a brother, I know. I know your story. You know my story. We are under a good and fair sentence. We deserve death. We, in it, it, it's just for them to carry this out. But this man, this man has done nothing. This man who was previously reviling, railing against Jesus with his partner in crime is now rebuking his fellow, fellow criminal for railing against Jesus. He reminds his, his brother, his partner in crime, that there is a vast difference between him and this Jesus. They are guilty and Jesus is totally innocent. And then this man utters a small and simple prayer. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This criminal who had made a total wreck out of his life who is known for his lawlessness, he was a proud man, he was a reviler against God, sees himself now as he has never seen himself before. He sees himself as a sinner. Guilty. Deserving. Justice. And in that moment, simultaneously, he sees Jesus for who he is. The righteous king. So he prays, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And I'm sure at that moment, the people who are watching, the guards who are standing there and the other criminal is thinking, you have gone mad. In this moment, all this punishment has drove you to a place where you are just losing your marbles. Jesus, a king? What king gets crucified with criminals? And yet Jesus' words are recorded in some of the most startling words, verses in the Bible. He said to him, truly, I say to you, today, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus hears this man's plea for mercy and immediately says, today, brother, friend, you are going to be with me in paradise. Charles Spurgeon said of this verse, he said this, this convert was the specimen of what Jesus meant to do. He he seemed to say to all the heavenly powers, I bring a sinner with me and he is a sample of all the rest. I love that. He's saying to the angels, hey, get ready. This criminal that I'm bringing in, he's going to be one of many. You and I, the reality is, you and I are not any different than this thief. Sure, you're cleaned up, you're looking pretty. You, you, most of you probably showered this morning, you did your hair, you combed, uh, combed your hair, you, you look nice, you put deodorant on, you got makeup, for those of you who do the makeup thing, and you, you've got clean clothes on, you, you're, you're all put together, but the reality is, you are like this thief. The reality is we are all dying. Every one of us. We, like this sinful man, are all heading each day, moment by moment, as the clock ticks, we are all heading to our death. Not one of us knows the hour or day in which we will breathe our last death. Brothers and sisters, we are all dying. On top of that, every one of us are sinners. Each one of us has reviled and railed against God. We have rejected the cross. We have lived in rebellion against God's law. Every one of us are sinners in need of mercy. And every one of us are helpless. Like the criminal, we are all helpless. We cannot pull ourselves from underneath God's judgment any more than this man could pull himself off of the cross. We are all helpless. And yet we must wonder, how is it that Jesus can say to to those who come to Him by faith, you will be with me in paradise? How can Jesus say this? When in reality He should say, yeah, you're damned to hell, man. I know what you've done. You are screwed. My Father's justice is coming down for you. How can any of us have assurance that this one named Jesus can even, he's able to forgive our sins? After all, not long after Jesus said these words to the criminal, the Bible records at the end of this chapter in verse 46, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And with that, having breathed his last, how can a dead God forgive us? We must ask then the third and the the most important question. Where is this Jesus now? The 1966 Time Magazine's article or cover read this. Is God dead? There were many people who thought it was time to just move on. 
get, get past this existence of God and choose a different kind of worldview. Their views aren't new. In Germany, Friedrich Nietzsche, who, who died in the, in the year 1900, proclaimed the death of God. That's a pretty, pretty gutsy move. He said this, God died under our knives. And who will wipe the blood with our hand, from our hands? And with what water can we cleanse ourselves? What are our churches now but tombs of God? He was convinced that God died. And with them, the religion. In other words, if God is dead, no one can be forgiven and church is a waste. That's kind of the testimony of many people today, right? <laughs> really, you're getting... It is a great day to sit outside, lay in the hammock, go to the beach, do whatever you want to do. Church is a waste. It doesn't really matter. The Apostle Paul agrees, honestly, with this logic. He, he wrote to the Christians in, in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he said this, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's garbage. It's a waste. And you are still in your sin then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are a people who are most to be pitied. What is he saying? He's saying that if Jesus is still in the grave, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished and they are still just in the grave. In other words, Jesus' promises, promise, today you are, will be with me in paradise, is worthless if he is still in the grave. See, if Jesus is still in the grave, the Bible is worthless. Missio Dei Church and everything that we are trying to do is worthless, along with all the churches around the world. They're worthless. This sermon, honestly, you're wasting your time. It's a lie. Just go home. The reality is, if Jesus is still in the grave, Christian parent, your effort to raise your children to love Jesus is a waste of time. Christian student, your effort to live out the gospel before your classmates is in vain if Jesus is still in the grave. My dear friend, wrestling with the, even the claims of Jesus, don't waste your, your time because it's all a hoax if Jesus is still in the grave. And Christian, in the words of Paul, we of all people are most to be pitied. If Jesus is still in the grave. But here, my friends, is the good news. The cross isn't the end of the story. Look at Luke 24. Just recorded three short days after Jesus died. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. Because they were assuming what? He's still, in the, he's still in the tomb. He's still dead. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Why didn't they find it? 
As the apostle said, said later on in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, he said, but in fact, Jesus has been raised from the dead. The book of Acts tells the story of Stephen, the first Christian martyr being stoned to death. The Bible says that as the stones were being hurled at him, one after another, before he died, he looked up into heaven and saw Jesus standing where? At the right hand of God the Father. And Jesus was there extending his arms to, in effect, saying, See, Stephen, in a few short moments... You're going to be dead. But you're going to be more alive in heaven than you have ever been. D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist of the 1800s, died uh, before he died, said this. Soon you will read in the newspapers that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't believe it. Because in that moment, I shall be more alive than I have ever been. Can you imagine that? And in his final moments of his life, he says this, The earth recedes, the heavens opens. If this be death, this is glorious. And with that, he breathed his last. Friends, I stand before you today and proclaim that there is there is not a tomb that was deep enough and there is no grave clothes that were strong enough and there is no stone heavy enough to keep Jesus in the grave. Right? And that's good news. So where is Jesus now? He is standing at the right hand of God the Father, alive. And you know what He is doing right now? He is calling out to you. His, his words, His calling is, is not just for us here today in our little spa that we call a church. He is calling out to the world and He is saying to you, will you go with My words and call out as I have called out? Will you go and proclaim the good news that I am alive? So here at the cross, we see a microcosm of the whole story of Scripture. The whole story of humanity. Each one of us will be one of these two criminals. We, we will share in their destination. We are all guilty. And like them, we are all dying. And we may not be hanging on a cross for a few hours, a few hours from death, but death is as certain as it is for them. And these... Two thieves looked identical in this life, but different in their response. And the same is going to be true for you. And the same is going to be true for our neighbors, our, our, our family members, our, our co-workers. Whoever you come in contact with, the same is going to be true for them. Some of us will just die without ever bowing the knee to Jesus. And we will face God. We will face His judgment for our sins. And other of us will bow to Him now and we will make, be made new in this life. Made more and more like Jesus. His righteousness and His holiness will clothe us. And we will be with Him forever in paradise. Look, the Bible says that every 
knee is going to bow. There is not one exception. Every knee will bow, either now or at the end. And trust me, it's going to be a lot better for those who bow now. Additionally, my friends, we have people like that possibly here this morning who need to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, this good news. We, we, we have people that are in our lives and somehow we have been anesthetized, we have be- grown numb to uh, the necessity, the urgency of the gospel of sharing it and we just get on this afternoon with living our lives We just go on living without any sense of urgency, knowing that they are are sinners, hopeless, dying, and going to be meeting their Maker someday. Friends, we are not a spa for the saved. Did you hear that? This is not your bubble bath of other Christians where you feel nice, warm, and safe, and cozy. My friends, this is a hospital. This is a rescue mission. And you are her workers. Going out with the message of the gospel to men, women, and children and sharing the life-saving message of Jesus Christ. Will you go? Will you go? Or will you remain cold and anesthetized in your heart, numb to the saving work of Jesus in your heart, and not compelled out of gratitude and love for your Savior to share that message? Will you go? Here's the good news. And we need to remember this. Because Jesus is alive, we, like the criminal, can come to Him with all of our sin, knowing that He died the death that we deserve. He buried the sin that is, and it stayed in the grave. And He rose again so that He can absolutely say with all the authority in the world, You are forgiven. And if you are here today, and you are hearing this, and you've been with Missio Day since day one, and you're hearing this, and all of a sudden the Spirit goes, that's what I want you to believe. My friends, I, I want you to receive the gift of forgiveness. Not of the gift of religiosity or the gift of churchness, or the the gift of, look at how neat my family is. But I I implore you, receive the gift of life from Jesus Christ today. And if you need to talk to me, Nathan, I encourage you. No, I don't encourage you. I implore you. Please, talk 
And I'd love to pray with you. Because here's the reality. Jesus is alive. And your sins can be forgiven. In Jesus' name. Amen? Let's pray.